to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. They backed off, at least for now. I had a feeling they would, and here we are. Uh, Phones are open, everybody. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about the House postponing, delaying the vote on the health care bill? the first major legislative step of the Trump administration, and here we are. It can be fixed. This is not the end of the world. I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but there's a lot that we need to discuss here. Um, First of all, according to the tally that's up on the New York Times, among House Republicans, 146 uh, are voting yes, or would vote yes if the vote were held today. 46 are undecided. And uh, on the health care bill, 12 have concerns or lean no, and 33 are voting no, and the bill will fail if 23 or more vote no. So those are the numbers. So they're putting they're push, pushing back this health care bill. Uh, this is not surprising to me at all. I have been critical of this bill from the start, uh, ever since I got to see more than just the initial House talking points on it. We were able to break the news of this American Health Care Act on the show, uh, at least the, the news of the uh, initial uh, inclusion of certain good things like tax cuts, the repeal of some of the, uh, the taxes that are in the Obamacare, legislative monstrosity. But this is a moment of reckoning for the GOP and for the Trump administration. Make no doubt uh, or have no doubt about it. Uh, This is when we finally get to see that there is a point at which some conservatives will not just go along because there is an R next to someone's name or because they represent the Republican Party in the White House. Uh, This bill uh, has problems. We'll get into the the details of where it stands right now and where this is all going uh, later on in the show. Right now, I want to focus more on the 30,000-foot view of all of this. Um, it really comes down to free will. Those of you who have spent time uh, researching the history of the church uh, know all about uh, predestination, know all about uh, Calvinism, know all about free will, know all about these different discussions about the human condition. Do we really get to choose? Do we get to decide for ourselves? Is all of this set up somewhere? And this is a a fascinating area of philosophical inquiry within the Christian faith. And I'm reminded of it today because that's what no one's willing to really say here, that this is all a question of do we have free will on health care or not? Does the government get to determine for us what our health care plan looks like, more or less, or not? And right now, the government is 
trying to put itself in a position, including our own Republican representatives, where they get to determine all sorts of aspects of this health care bill. Minimum benefits or the basic benefits packages. There's these different ways that they say this. What that means is that they can determine, they in this case being uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, what is the baseline of coverage for every plan. And you can hear some of the original architects of this, including Gruber, who is the guy who was like the stupidity of the American work, you know, the American voter is a political advantage. Remember that guy, MIT professor uh, Gruber? Not to be confused with Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Great character, by the way. Phenomenal movie. Maybe somebody will bring it up in action movie, quote, Friday tomorrow. But I just want to point out as well, Hans is supposed to be German, and his accent is definitely not German. It's English in that movie. Total non sequitur, but just made me think of it. So back to Gruber and healthcare. And get excited about action movie, quote, Friday uh, tomorrow, obviously, because it's Friday. Uh, We've been told all along that... We've been told for years now that one of the best parts of Obamacare is that it will have all these uh, benefits in it, that each plan will have benefits. But that's really not the proper way to think of this. It's not that we're going to just get more stuff. When you include more in the plans, everybody has to pay more because the insurers are then going to be paying out for a greater number of people's health needs. And you don't get to choose, right? So this this is now where we finally have the debate over if it, if a single guy who has no intention of getting married maybe ever or having kids ever uh, should have to pay for pediatric, uh, you know, pe- pediatric dental care, or you know, you go through any number of uh, any number of different services, uh, acupuncture. You know, should you have to pay for acupuncture services? And you just go down the list from there. Currently, they determine, they being the government, what an acceptable benefits package is. Well, when that's the case, the government has control over what you are paying for in health care and what you are getting. If you want to see what price controls in government hands eventually look like, you just take a peek at recent goings-on in Venezuela. I'm not saying we're about to turn into Venezuela, but I'm just showing you that or, or drawing a, a parallel here, because any time the government gets to set prices and tell you what you can buy, what you have to buy, this is a bad idea. We were promised a free market plan. In fact, we were promised repeal and replace. Trump said it himself many, many times, as did members of Congress who largely ran on opposing amnesty and repeal and replace of Obamacare. We were told as well that there were constitutional arguments that were at the core of this entire debate. We were told that Obamacare, by regulating inactivity, so to take a step back for a moment, because of the terribly decided Supreme Court case, Wickard v. Filburn, uh, that had to do with someone growing wheat within his own state, but by selling wheat in his state, they said it affects the market that is interstate. Therefore, they completely blurred always and forever what interstate commerce truly means, because if commerce can have a second order effect on commerce that crosses state lines, well, then they get to and then they just decide that anything that affects commerce anywhere because it can have that second order effect can be regulated by the government. This is how the squid, this is how the tentacles of the octopus in D.C. or squid, whichever is scarier to you, per, uh, scarier to you. Personally, I like to eat them both. Squid, octopus, they reach across the country in so many different aspects of our lives. 
a lot of it comes from this faulty interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause, one of the most most important coups for big government in our history. It's that one Supreme Court decision in the aftermath of what it meant, which was that the government could regulate now almost anything. I mean, the government even goes to the point where it will regulate as uh, or try to regulate, and Joe Biden was very involved in this, domestic violence as under federal law, because it, even though it's illegal in all 50 states, but because it affects interstate commerce. I mean, they're just everything they say. It affects interstate commerce. But this was even a step beyond that. Go back to the Supreme Court decision uh, with Obamacare and the opposition to it wasn't the opposition to it wasn't just that it was expensive. The opposition to it wasn't just that it was uh, not doing as good, not doing a good job at all. It was expanding Medicaid. Uh, it wasn't just the, the cost of it, though, and the expansion of uh, government spending and government programs with regard to health care. It was that now and for the first time, the government could force you to buy a private product. Now, we're being told, OK, they're going to get rid of the individual mandate and there's going to be a penalty for those who are out of the insurance market who then buy into it. I think it was 30 percent. Well, here's the problem. If we're still going to try to cover all of these different politically favorable areas, whether it's uh, pre-existing conditions or we're going to get rid of community rating, which means that old people are paying the same as young people when that's great. That's not the way it should be. It's not politically popular, but a free market would mean that a younger, healthier person pays less, not pays more. Politicians don't want to tell people this, though. A lot of older people vote. A lot of younger people don't vote Republican. And there is once again this fundamental problem of do we have free will in healthcare? Can we make our own decisions or not? The answer right now is if we pass this bill, no, we, we don't have free will when it comes to health care uh, because you won't be able to determine what is in your plan. And I've talked to you about what a what real health insurance would look like. It would look like insurance, insurance that you have on your home, on your car. It is sharing of risk up across a broad pool in order to protect against ca- uh, cata- uh, catastrophe, not to pay for your everyday whatever it may be. You don't get insurance to put gas in your car. You don't get insurance because you want to get wood paneling on the side of your car because it's awesome. Side note. You get insurance because if you're in a wreck and your $20,000 vehicle or whatever it costs is now done, you may not be able to get to work. You may not be able to write that check. So they come in, and hopefully you won't be in a wreck. It's unlikely that you'll be in that wreck, but this is that's in, we understand what insurance is. We don't even have the proper terms in this debate. We're not even having the right discussion. The right discussion is do the American people have the right to determine for themselves how much health coverage they will buy? And if they choose not to, if we clear out the all the— nonsense regulations and all the different ways that government is already intruding in the market. I mean, this is classic Hayek at work here. Go If you read The Road to Serfdom, you'll see that government intrusion in the market always leads to further intrusion in the market because they've already created some imbalance. They've already done, they've already put their hand on the scale in one place. They're going to put it on the scale somewhere else. This is just the nature of government intervention. The more they do, the more they feel they have to do to fix whatever's been imbalanced by the initial action. 
absolutely true on health care. So we can either allow that people will have free will with health care. They'll be able to choose a plan, and that is their plan, and they can read it, and it is straightforward. But you know what that means? And this is why you've got all these Republicans now that are standing on the sidelines saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to vote, vote for this. Oh, this is not a good idea. It means you have to live with your choice. This is what no politician, including a, a lot of the Republicans right now, but no one wants to stand up and say, choice entails consequences. This is a corollary of our free will in a healthcare discussion. Choice means consequences. If you have the right to, or if you are able to choose to buy health insurance, you should be able to choose not to buy health insurance. And if that is a choice that you make, despite it being subsidized as coverage now, and I'm not talking about subsidizing care, I'm talking about insurance coverage, actual catastrophic coverage. That We may be able to do that as a society without bankrupting ourselves, but subsidizing everyone's care? Well, where does that stop and start? What's enough? But choice means consequences. That means that if you decide to go without insurance, what, if it is made right now, I understand there are people that are priced out of the market. Although with Obamacare, what you have is really expensive, bad insurance that you can't use so that some other people maybe have some usage. And it's just a giant machine for the redistribution of wealth. That's what Obamacare is. And a tax on the middle class, a series of taxes, many of which have been passed on to the middle class in different ways. Of course, this is statism 101. This is what they do. But if you want choice, you have to accept that there are consequences. If you want choice, you have to be willing to tell people that, okay, this is the way it's going to be. We can buy catastrophic plans. Anything else you want is in addition to that. We're going to have it be free market. You get to choose your coverage level, and then that's your coverage level. That's it. I don't know if enough Americans really want that. That's the troubling part of this. And maybe that's why Paul Ryan and others in the House that just want to push this through, they're looking at this from a pure transactional political reality perspective. What will they get if they push this through? How many Republicans will keep their jobs? How much power will still reside on the GOP side instead of the Democrats? But all that lip service about Obamacare as the status monstrosity, Obamacare regulating inactivity, unconstitutional. Oh, and the exchange, the second constitutional challenge as well about an exchange established by the state. They've changed the language in this thing. They've perverted basic constitutional understanding. They've done all these horrible things with Obamacare. And now here's their opportunity. We are presented with all the power they need for repeal and replace. And what do they do? Oh, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that. And now they're pushing it off because they've got to get their act together because they know the American people are watching this and they're saying, you've got to be kidding me, right? This is the best you guys can do. You've had years to figure this out. You've had years to make the case. In fact, they made the case and they made the promise. The case was that Obamacare was terrible. The promise was they would repeal and replace. And now they're saying, eh, you know, let's 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 not be too hasty. Let's not be uh, radicals on health care. Let's work with the existing structure. I'm sorry. You can't tell me it's health care tyranny during the midterms and then tell me that we're going to have, you know, uh, health care tyranny light going forward doesn't work that way. All right, we got to hit a break. Uh, 844-900-2825. What do you think about the House delaying? I'm sure some of you have got some thoughts on that one. So in some of the last-minute negotiations here to push forward this uh, American health care 
Actville. Uh, they're saying that there's a willingness to win over the uh, Freedom Caucus within the House. They might get rid of the essential benefits requirements in Obamacare for the individual market only, not for employer-based plans, because this is this is at the heart of the whole Obamacare problem. If the government gets to determine what is acceptable, what the minimum acceptable requirements for your health care plan are, one, it means that that can always change. So if the government says today that you, uh, you know, that, that, I don't know, Botox injections are not covered, maybe the Democrats come in and say, yeah, you know, everybody should be able to deal with their wrinkles. Botox, you know, Botox on us, everybody, now covered. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you have to look at. It's, it's not, ju- if we're just going to be negotiating over the amount of government intrusion into the marketplace, uh, it's just a matter of time before all of a sudden uh, we find ourselves um, we find ourselves just negotiating once again with the other side. Here's a Hayek quote for you. I mentioned Hayek before. If you have never read The Road to Serfdom, by the way, those of you listening, I'll be tossing books out there as suggestions throughout the course of this show, and The Road to Serfdom is, is essential. It's not... Look, it's not like reading Game of Thrones. You know, you're not going to want to stay up late at night like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to Tyrion Lannister? Uh, but it's a, a really good read. Uh, and there's some excellent, uh, excellent parts of it, excellent stuff in it. Um, here's a quote. The, the tragedy of collectivist thought is that while it starts out to make reason supreme, it ends by destroying reason because it mis- misconceives the process on which the growth of reason depends. So, you know, they, they start out by saying that It's all about being rational. It's all about doing what is best. Leave it to the experts. And then, of course, they suppress dissent and they get to a point where it just becomes the mob and they forget all about reason. Uh, Here's another one for the only alternative to submission to the impersonal and seemingly irrational forces of the market is submission to the equally uncontrollable and therefore arbitrary power of other men. That's what you got here on healthcare. You can either leave it up to the market or... You uh, you can leave it up to the market or you can have people in D.C. or other places that are going to be determining for you what your health care plan looks like. If you're not in control, a bureaucrat's in control. That's just the that's just the truth. And I know a lot of Republicans right now aren't particularly fond of getting into the truth of all this. They'd rather do what is popular. They'd rather do what they find uh, will get them reelected. Because as I said. Government, they more of us than are willing to admit it publicly. I think, especially Republicans and conservatives, want government there. If we if we skin our knee when we fall off our bicycle, to you know to make it all better, and that's not that's never going to be a, a good proposition for any of us. In the end, we will suffer as a result of that, and we also have to suffer by listening to the Nancy Pelosi's of the world talk about this. Uh, play seventy four. As bad as Trump Care was, uh, Republicans have been up to all night trying to make it worse. They're scrambling to find a bill that they can pass on the floor. I don't know if you want to call this, on Trump's part, a rookie's error, but you don't. All right, we got Nancy Pelosi saying saying this is a rookie error. That upsets me. We cannot put Pelosi in a position where she gets to make a mockery of the GOP in the first hundred days. We've got more. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. 
team. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Indeed, the Freedom Hunt lines are open. We've got Ann in Georgia on WMCD. Ann, thanks for calling in. Or not. Do we not have Ann? What happened to Ann? Oh, Ann's gone. Okay, sorry, Ann, we tried. All right, well, I want to get into our uh, next... We're going to switch topics up here. So this is this is uh, the kind of story that is is even just tough to read about. Uh, and it, of course, has created or restarted, I should say, a fierce debate over illegal immigration, over sanctuary cities, and yes, over the way the media talks about illegals in this country in general, how all of this is covered or not covered as the case may be. So this is the story, and it has certainly not gotten, let me just, as I'm here with you live, I just want to make sure that I'm not uh, imagining that this has gotten very little coverage. Uh, If we were to go on some of the major websites and take a look around, I've seen this story largely buried. Uh, They don't want to cover this. Now, I know there's other news stories out there, and they'll say, well, we can't put everything... But I'm, I'm, on, I'm on ABC News right now, and I don't see anything on this at all. And I do see uh, Dems file ethics complaint over governor's, what is this? Skiing tweet. I don't even know what this story is, but I'm just looking at headlines here. So that's on ABC News right now. And I could do this on other, let me see, do I, oh, no, I'm sorry. Fine, they, they do have it. They do have it up now. It has finally, so pardon me. I wanted to check in real time as I'm on air with you. Um, it is getting a little bit more attention now because it's such a horrific case, uh, and I am going to tell you some of the details now. So in Maryland, uh, in Maryland, you have a young girl who was allegedly uh, brutally raped. She was, I believe they, they said the victim was 14, by a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old in a Maryland high school in Rockville, Um, and the two students uh, were freshmen, even though they're 17 and 18 years old, because of their limited English language skills. Uh, That's what's been reported in the media, and sure enough, at least one of them is here illegally, is not supposed to be in the country, is is an illegal alien. Uh, The way, of course, it's being reported by a lot of the various news outlets is that an undocumented immigrant has been accused of uh, raping a classmate. And there are some questions that I think would come to mind. It's, by the way, questions about policy here. But first, it's as brutal and, and, and terrible a story as you're likely to see any time soon uh, about a sexual assault it was in it was in a bathroom and it was violent and uh, now this is all this is all alleged it has not yet been in the court system and so i can't say that anyone here is guilty yet but these are the allegations but the backstory of at least one and really both of the individuals both of the accused in this case raises a lot of questions uh, for one this one of the individuals came here in Uh, 2016 and crossed the border as part of that surge of 
unaccompanied youth. Uh, and uh, these were people that were able to leave Central America because um, these are people that are able to leave Central America because they say that it's too violent. They're fleeing gang threats. They're fleeing gang violence. Uh, and that means now that you can claim asylum of sorts in this country, or you can claim asylum. You can come here and say that you're fleeing Central America because it's so terrible, it's so violent. Well, there are a lot of places around the world that are rough and that are full of gang violence or in the midst of a civil war. Let's be honest here. The reason that Central American migrants were given this particular status and and specifically unaccompanied minors is because it is walkable or drivable. We have a contiguous land border with Mexico, which has a contiguous, well, has a border, I should say, with various Central American countries. So it's pretty easy to get here. And I think that we should be open and talk about that. We make this, we're, we're told that this is such a, a clear humanitarian concern, but I, I don't see us saying that we're going to you know, kick open, kick open the doors and have a special asylum program for people from any number of, I mean, those who are persecuted in China, people in Somalia, you go, go around the world. There are lots of, unfortunately, there are lots of terrible, violent, horrible places. Fortunately for us, America's incredible and it's a, a privilege to be here and it is winning the lottery to be born here in terms of you know human history i mean it's an amazing place to be but we can't just let everybody who wants to come into this country come into this country and that's becoming a controversial statement now i say that to you with uh, full knowledge of the fact that saying that automatically sets off in many people's minds some alarms well that sounds a bit and this is a very straightforward statement not everybody who wants to come to this country can come to this country that's automatically setting you up as in the minds of a lot of Democrats, certainly the entirety of the progressive left movement in this country, that simple and straightforward statement makes you a bigot, makes you hateful, makes you evil. Forget about wrong on policy. And so with these Central American unaccompanied minors coming across the border, these are these are illegal aliens who are coming here through a a loophole in the system. And they were, in, in one case, one of the accused was supposed to go and show up in court. And the shortened version of this is, yeah, he was supposed to go through proceedings and maybe he could have been deported. But instead, he just stayed. He just stayed and then he enrolled in school. And he's 18 and he enrolls as a freshman. And now we're told that also Maryland is considering right after this happened, is considering uh, it's becoming a sanctuary, what is it, a sanctuary state? Uh, so, yeah, Maryland is moving to be a sanctuary state. So people look at this and they say, all right, this is somebody who shouldn't have been in the, 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 atta- the alleged attacker. And I know people say, well, why do you allege? This is a, for legal reasons. One is not you're not guilty in this country, legal or illegal. You're not. Well, he's guilty of being illegal, but you're not guilty of a crime until you are uh, found guilty of it. So we should say alleged because that's an important part of our jurisprudence. And while the left may be willing to throw out our court system when it suits them, and we'll be talking more about that later on in the show. I do think that some of these protections are essential for 
all of us and even some of these conventions about how we speak about these things. Oh, and on on that note, this is always, of, of course, being reported as an undocumented, undocumented immigrant. Uh, the terminology, the, the euphemism here. No, this is this is somebody who's illegal. You're in, he's in the country illegally and was caught at the border and was allowed to then go join relatives and didn't go through the proceedings as he was supposed to. And now is accused of first degree rape. There are a lot of immigration policy questions that come up here. And people, of course, are outraged about this. Um, why would somebody be able to do this? And uh, forget about the horrific sexual assault, but just that you come across the border, you're able to go join your family. And they allowed 150,000 of these unaccompanied minors. By the way, do you think they were proving their age? They just were, I'm sure, telling a story at the border about how they were fleeing violence and and gang activity in in these Central American countries, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Um, these are not the... I know that they have per capita among the highest homicide rates, certainly in the in the Western world, may in fact be the highest uh, in either Honduras or else... I think Honduras actually might be number one. It's certainly close. But there are a lot of countries all over the world that have people that are in difficult circumstances. That doesn't mean that we open the doors and say, okay, well, if you can get here, you can stay. But there's a powerful political constituency here. Uh, the Democrat Party holds itself up as largely open borders, especially when it comes to immigrants of Hispanic or Latino origin. Democratic Party views this as essential for its future. And this is just about straight up power politics. This isn't, this isn't because they're so moral. It's not because they love people more than Republicans do. It is politics that goes all the way to the top. And it's about gathering together as many uh, different ethnic groups as political blocks as you can in order to create, well, the coalition of different interests that is the modern Democratic Party. Uh, so that's where they come down on this issue. They don't really care that much about anything else other than Democrats, other than just votes. And they figure that there will be uh, 70 30 is roughly the, the breakdown of those of Latino or Hispanic origin who will vote Democrat over Republican. So you look at this, you have a sanctuary, Maryland wanting to become a sanctuary state, which is deciding that federal law doesn't really matter anymore, that we're all going to have to pay for the benefits of illegals who come and decide that they're going to get access to the system in various ways. Uh, and this is just the kind of activity that the American people, I think, are sick of, uh, at least those who voted for Trump and are hoping the Republicans build a wall and stop all of this. But then you get into another aspect of it, and that is that we will be told, and this is the media coverage of it, which I believe really upsets a lot of people because we are told that we should always hear the story about the illegal, and I've seen interviews on TV time and about the illegal who's a straight A student and the pride of his or her family and just doing all these fantastic things. And that is, look, anybody who's, you know, we're, we're all children of God. I, I get it. Anyone who's doing a good job, I understand that, you know, that person and their family should be able to be proud, but or should be proud. But we see these news stories because they're trying to show us that th this is always the reality. And even if it's the reality 99 times out of 100, one out of 100, the reality is something else. One out of 100, and I'm just making up those numbers. I don't know what they are, and I don't really care. Whatever the number is, 
There is also a cost to allowing illegals into the country. There's a cost to bringing in 150,000 unaccompanied minors. And we should be allowed to talk about that, and we should be told to the government's ability to tally it all what that cost really is. But instead, you have uh, largely a, a blackout on this issue, not, not much talk about it at all. I, I looked at the ABC News website before I told you that they, they do have a story on there. I think this story has gotten traction, although for the first few days it certainly did not. ABC, NBC, and CBS were not spending time on this. And I'd be curious to see what the coverage was like on, uh, on CNN and MSNBC as well. Um, but you'll see that the media gets excited to tell certain stories that involve a horrific sexual assault. They really do. They, they all couldn't wait to tell us about the Rolling Stone completely fake and debunked gang rape story because it was about privilege and white privilege and fraternity brothers and, uh, you know, male patriarchy and dominance and sexual violence and all these themes that they love to talk about. When you have one, possibly two illegal aliens who are in this country and have to be three grades behind where they are age-wise because they obviously speak very little, if any, English and are allegedly involved in a horrific and brutal sexual assault a rape of a young girl in her high school. That's not a story that the media wants to tell. And I think it's fair to ask, why are there some stories of sexual assault involving otherwise you know, private citizens, not public figures, some stories that they think should be symbolic of a much broader problem, you know, or the Duke lacrosse case. I remember reading those headlines, New York Times headlines, you know, Duke lacrosse, uh, team rapists where privilege and white male dominance and all this, uh, you know, where, where sex and uh, racism and uh, white privilege all came into one place and they could talk about it. They're not drawing any conclusions about an illegal who was caught at the border, was able to slip through the system, was a freshman as an 18-year-old in high school because he doesn't speak English or doesn't is not able to function at his grade level, and of course you they can say, "Well, Buck, well, isn't that well? We have to pay. You have to pay for English as a second language training. All these these are aspects of an immigration policy we might want to discuss, but there are no lessons to be drawn from this for the left. An illegal alien who crossed the border was caught, was allowed to stay with his family, slipped through the system, and now allegedly engaged in a horrific sexual uh, crime is not representative of anything to the Democrats. This is just something that." can happen, maybe, but let's talk more about all the valedictorians. You know, you, if you're going to do stories on the news about illegal aliens who are valedictorians, you also have to do stories on the news about illegal aliens who commit heinous crimes and not so clearly show a preference for one over the other. Because why, why are we only allowed to know the benefits of illegal entry into this country? Why can't we know the costs, too? I don't want to tell you the truth. They want to be dishonest with you. 844-900-2825 on the phone lines. If you have any thoughts on this case, I would like to hear them, uh, and we'll be right back. In a matter of minutes, the House Republicans are going to be in their closed-door meeting up on the Hill. Uh, it's going to be happening here uh, just, in a, just in a few minutes where they get to talk about uh, this health care situation and 
I don't. Th- this is there are there are complicated ways to discuss this, and there's the straightforward way. And the complicated way is to get into all the different details. The straightforward way is to just say that the American people, or at least the Republicans who voted for a lot of these senators and members of Congress, uh, were promised repeal and replace. They were not promised uh, change some of the change some of the aspects of Obamacare around to make it work better. And I wonder what impact this has on the Trump presidency as well, long term. It's too early to say this is, look, maybe they work this whole thing out. Maybe it's fine. But you've got Representative Massey, for example, saying that this could, well, cause problems not just for members of Congress, but for Trump himself. I've counted 30 conservatives who are voting no on this, and they really aren't changing their position and haven't changed their position in the last 24 hours. We're afraid he's a one-term president if this passes. We are trying to save him. The phone calls to my office are running 275 against versus four. Only four votes from my constituents are in favor of this. So this electorally, voting for this is bad today, and it's going to be really bad in two or three years when the changes start kicking in. They're just making adjustments. They are not ripping this thing up root and branch, which is what they promised. And I would want to ask Paul Ryan, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get him. We'll reach, we'll reach out. We'll see if Paul will join us. I know he's a busy guy, Um, but I would want to ask him why, why the promises, why the show votes in the past uh, that were repealed and then this, and then something else. I, you know, maybe fool me to borrow from Bush, fool me once, can't, can't get fooled again. And, and I agree this is not what we were told we were going to get. And here we are. Not only are they offering this up, but there's this suggestion that if you have questions about this, you're being disloyal to the party. And if you have questions about this, you are trying to subvert Trump's agenda. I have never been never Trump, and I am clearly in favor of as much success for this administration as possible. But I look at this and I think to myself, it's just not a good plan. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Everybody, we're joined by Rich Lowry. He is editor of National Review. He's a syndicated columnist and commentator for Fox News. Rich, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me. Uh, Okay, we got the House GOP closed door meeting happening right now. What do you? What What is happening in your mind with this whole health care bill? How do we get to this point? Well, it looks like it's uh, unspooling before our eyes. I was talking earlier to a, a member who's not a conservative bomb thrower. He's not a moderate. Probably pretty much a median. Uh, House Republican member who likes Paul Ryan a lot, and he was thinking he's going to stand up and say, look, this thing's done, and let's just start over with something we can actually defend and that we like, which I think would be a good idea. And that's kind of how they got into this fix in the first place. They started with a compromise of a compromise based on their understanding of what the Senate parliamentarian would permit when the bill gets to the Senate, and uh, it was just kind of a, a disaster out of the gate. Rich, I've been suggesting for a while, and I'm waiting to hear a compelling answer, and maybe it doesn't exist, so it might be a question that just makes the point repeatedly here, but it seems to me that if one wants the most conservative 
and free market health care bill imaginable, one does not start with, as you put it, the compromise of the compromise. If, if negotiation is the art, or rather politics is the art of the possible, why not negotiate against the most conservative version? And whatever happened to all those repeal votes that were taken before? I, that really was all for show, I suppose. Yeah, well, a, a couple points. What Ryan will tell you in response to the first question is, look, the Senate can't even take this up unless it meets the parliamentarians' uh, uh, standards for what can pass under so-called reconciliation. Uh, I don't know whether that's necessarily true or not. And two, the repeal bills, and this is where we get to some of the hypocrisy of the House Freedom Caucus, they didn't fully repeal Obamacare either because they didn't deal with the regulations which supposedly can't go through reconciliation. And I think basically the House Freedom Caucus, they won't tell you this uh, openly, at least a lot of them uh, won't, but they just don't want to replace. So uh, their problem's not just with the repeal not going far enough, but it's the fact that there's a replacement on there as well. And, and this is the deeper problem. It's a party that's deeply conflicted on a promise it's made voters for years that it would repeal and replace. Obamacare. And, and so th they don't really want to do what they've been. I mean, this is really when we get to the heart of the matter. They don't want to do what they've been saying that they want to do. Correct. Uh, and doing what they want to do, if you're including replace uh, as part of that, which has been part of the mantra for years, is really difficult. And it probably involves a, a tax credit. Otherwise, you're going to uh, really knock a lot of people off in health, health insurance and leave out to dry the working poor and kind of lower middle class. And that's ideologically painful for a lot of people. It's uh, expensive, more expensive than we would like. But that's what a, a plausible replacement is going to uh, look like. And uh, I also have to ask you what you think this does with the Trump administration. This is not a great first showing for the leadership that the president can, you know, the, the leadership the president has on the Congress. Now, I know this is up to the Congress, not up to the president, but people are saying, look, it's not so. He's supposed to be the the great deal maker, the great negotiator. It's very early, I know, and maybe this all comes together. But this seems like a stumble out of the gate. It's definitely a stumble out of the gate, and my fear is that would be the first step toward poisoning uh, the president's relationship with Congress. And uh, Congress has a conservatizing influence on him, and it may be uh, this may be the start of him going his his own way and figuring. Well, I tried to placate the House Freedom Caucus. That didn't work. I trusted Paul Ryan. That didn't work. I'm going to go my own way, and maybe I should have listened to my counselors who said I should have tried to work with Democrats with a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill out of the gate instead. Now, all this is speculative. You know, they could, as we speak, be coming together there on Capitol Hill, and maybe they pass this thing tomorrow. It's still going to face a very uncertain fate in the Senate, but it, it, none of the signs are good, and this will be a, a major legislative failure right out of the box. What was your, do you, do you have one part of the bill? Is there one objection that you have above all others to what the version of it is so far? The, the core of Obamacare is the regulations, and this bill leaves the regulations in place. Uh, the guaranteed issue and community rating, which basically means you can get insurance uh, at the same price as everyone else, even if you're sick. And that's a major distortion in the healthcare market that entails all the rest of the regulations and mandates and spending that's part of Obamacare. And what this bill does, it undoes a lot of the taxes and the spending, but then it leaves those regulations in place. At the same time, it 
repeals the individual mandate, which is kind of necessary if you're going to have those regulations. So it will actually make the individual market worse. It will make premiums go up. It will make it harder for people to get insurance. And that's the exact opposite of the direction Republicans should be going in. Now, I think you know, we're, we're far beyond the point in this country. You know, we passed it probably 80 years ago where we're going to have a libertarian uh, paradise in healthcare. It's going to be uh, a public-private complicated mess, but we should be trying to move it in a market-oriented direction. And unless you're getting rid of those regulations, uh, you're basically not doing that. And I still don't like this idea that they're going to make it better in stages along the line. That also, that didn't pass the smell test initially. And there are questions even about whether the Senate parliamentarian and the issues about reconciliation are really issues or if that's an inflated issue by senator being used as an excuse by senators who don't want to go there. But I think we, we've gotten to the, the core of that one. I want to ask you about uh, the, the Gorsuch hearing. We had Schumer making a, a threat today that they're going to filibuster Gorsuch. One, do you think he's for real? And two, let's assume he's for real just for the sake of discussion. What, do we, what should the Republicans do about it? Well, I, I kind of think he's still maybe bluffing and will back down because he's a very shrewd tactician and it just makes no sense to filibuster on this one because they, they follow through on it. Republicans are united behind Gorsuch. He was uh, unflappable and, and really f uh, completely faultless in those hearings. And they'll exercise the nuclear option when it comes to Supreme Court picks. And that will basically mean whoever else Trump picks you know, down the line, assuming he gets other picks, is going to uh, have even less of a problem getting through. And if I were Schumer, I'd say, OK, we're not stopping this guy no matter what. Let him go. And then maybe the next pick isn't, isn't as good. Maybe there's some inter-Republican um, divisions on the next pick. So if we choose to filibuster the next one, maybe Republicans won't have the near-unanimous support they need within their own party to exercise the filibuster option. So if I were Schumer, I'd be keeping my powder dry. I'd be shocked at the end of the day he doesn't do that. And if he doesn't, it's a sign of just the inflamed left has overcome his tactical common sense. Yeah, uh, opposing Gorsuch in, the, in such a way, using the filibuster, it, it, it's to, to borrow from the kids, it's, it's like he's just being a hater, you know? I mean, Gorsuch, yeah, exactly. they, they haven't been able to land a, a single punch on Gorsuch during these hearings of any, real, of, of any real substance, so it looks like they're just being, it looks like sore loser stuff. Yeah, and, and not that this is necessarily a... Um, an attribute you need in a judge, but he's smoother than any of those politicians. I mean, he, he just outclassed every single one of them. So he has a wonderful temperament. He's a likable man, and he knows the law and has an impeccable record, and he has a lot of uh, important uh, liberal endorsers. So this this was just a, a home run pick. Speaks well of Trump that he made it. Speaks well of the the people at the Federal Society and in their circles who. Um, helped narrow this down and helped them make this selection. But this is the, the single best thing about the uh, Trump's 100 days. Now, you have a piece, uh, how the GOP crack-up happens. How, how does it happen, Rich? <laughs> I just see the well, headline here. The, the, uh, the predicate is healthcare crashing and burning, and it, it looks like we might be in that place. And it's what I alluded to earlier. It's speculative. But, you know, there, there are these divisions in the White House, and we've had reporting the, uh, the last week or so that uh, uh, my understanding it's, it's correct, is that the, the Reince-Bannon thing has been overplayed, and they are in a, a tactical alliance, 
against the New Yorkers, as they're called. And this is Jared and Ivanka, who aren't going anywhere, and Gary Cohn, the economic advisor, who has a huge amount of power. And these are basically non-ideological people. So it, it may be if things go poorly uh, on Capitol Hill you know, the, the rest of this year and Trump continues to slide in the polls, that they look at each other and they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't be with these crazy uh, conservatives. Maybe we should pull a mini Schwarzenegger. You know, Arnold was elected as a, a populist conservative reformer, and then when he realized that wasn't working for him, he basically switched sides in California. And I don't think Trump could ever do a full uh, Schwarzenegger because it would destroy his coalition, but you could see a, a pivot, to use that overused word from the campaign, um, towards the center towards a non-ideological approach, and uh, th that that would um, create a very enduring division in the party. Well, we know that Schwarzenegger can't pull a full Trump because he tried with The Apprentice, and my, my, <laughs> exactly. my understanding is that he had this whole thing about, uh, you know, instead of you're fired, it was, someone just told me this today, it was get to the chopper, which is a great line from a great movie, but has nothing to do with boardroom politics. So <laughs> I wouldn't be quoting Predator if somebody hadn't done a good enough job, like, you know, making t-shirts or, you know, running the ice cream stand for the day. Anyway, uh, but uh, give me the, be, before we let you go, Rich, I appreciate you giving us time today. Uh, what, what is the glass half full? Everything's going to be cool. Chill out. It's all good. Trump's got this. The GOP, they've got this. What does that look like starting today? Day and going out a few weeks here on the on the health care bill. Well, it's give me the, the happy stuff. Yeah, see, the, the House. Um, let's assume they don't get it tomorrow. The House uh, either reconvenes and writes a much better bill, or the Senate takes it up. And um, you know, th this is where it might be stretching things a little bit. The Senate writes a better bill, which, which doesn't usually happen. Uh, but one way or the other, they follow through on their promise to repeal and replace, and then they get some sort of major tax tax package through, and you get the, the deregulation going both unilaterally and uh, on the part of the Obama administration, where, uh, sorry, the Trump administration where they can, and then some of that on the Hill as well, and the economy continues to pick up. And I think that's the major buttress underneath the Trump. And a, a lot of the stuff, the, the chaos, the controversies won't matter if we're at 3% growth for the year and wages begin to pick up. And I think that that's an achievable goal. But uh, if, if none of this stuff happens uh, in terms of policy and you have you know, the economy sagging back down into the Obama mediocrity and then all the controversies on top of it, that's where you're, you're looking at um, uh, you know, potentially that crack-up scenario I was talking about in a year. Rich Lowry's editor of National Review, syndicated columnist and Fox News contributor. Rich, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, team phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. We've got Barbara in West Virginia on the line, WWVA. Hey, Barbara. Hello? I just, hello. Yes, Hello. Can you hear me now? Yes, ma'am. We got you loud and clear. What's up? Okay, I'm a Vietnam veteran. Thank you for your I service. Have, I have a problem. Um, I have a medication. I've been telling everybody about it on Twitter, and there's nothing anybody can do, but I have a medication that um, is basically a water pill, and um, they went from zero copay uh, to $250 the last time I called in, 
it was $300. And I don't know what to do. I have um, swollen optic nerves, and I had a stroke. Um, and it's a, more like a life-threatening thing. But I've written everybody I know. Uh, I'm very sorry to hear about the, this trouble you're having, both the medical trouble as well as uh, the costs associated with it. Um, it sounds like this this may be part of what I've noticed in the healthcare market in recent years, which is just they're, they're raising prices on drugs all over the place. And, and and this is not even a this is not even a drug drug. It's 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 not oxycotton or you know nothing bad. No, I understand. Why would they raise it so high? They're they're not. You know, they're. Uh, I was speaking to a, a dermatologist friend of mine recently, and she said that even uh, drugs that are used for uh, pr- pretty straightforward, but but uh, you know, difficult skin conditions are being dropped by insurance companies because they're just trying to find ways to hold down costs. And uh, and Barbara, thank you for calling in from West Virginia. But this is what happens: the, the insurance companies, sure, they say, okay, you, you know, you want you want prenatal care, you want uh, parity for mental health, you want all of these different things. We're going to get the money's going to come from somewhere else. This is this is what happens. And by, for example, raising the prices on certain classes or types of drugs, well, now only people that are trying to get that drug are going to be upset. And so you can raise prices here and there without having to make some big announcement. You know, when you when you change the schedule of how, and I'm sure some someone listening probably even works in the uh, is a, I don't know if you're an actuarial for the pharmacy or but how you or for the uh, uh, pharma um, big pharma companies. I mean. But I'm sure if we if we look at the prices of a lot of drugs, and this is something that Trump has been talking about, people say, well, we need to have more competition for drugs. Part of the problem here is that we more or less have reached a point where we're running out of ways to keep these insurance companies going, at least in the individual market. That's why they are bailing. That's why you have fewer and fewer plans available. And it's also why you're seeing shifting costs all the time. You know, a, you know, a, a medicine hasn't gotten more expensive since last year. It's just the insurance companies decided that they can cover less of it or you, it's less expensive for you. So or, or it's more expensive for you and less expensive for them. By the way, do we have Schumer on the uh, filibuster threat, by the way? I just want to. Oh, Chuck Schumer. Let's play. Ah, Chuck. Let's play it. After careful deliberation. I have concluded that I cannot support Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court. His nomination will have a cloture vote. He will have to earn 60 votes for confirmation. My vote will be no, and I urge my colleagues to do the same. Oh, he's going to filibuster. He's going to force it. He's going to force the 60. Now... I strongly, I think this is grandstanding. I agree with Rich before. I, I don't believe that Schumer is tactically foolish enough to do this. Although in this climate, you know, who knows? Maybe he feels like this is how he becomes the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. You know, we won't be hearing about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Won't be hearing about them anymore. And it's good for me, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, my Elizabeth Warren and my Hillary Clinton are kind of the same, just as a as a side note. Uh, but I, I don't think he's going to do this. If he does, the Republicans should up the ante and they should go with uh, 
the nuclear option here and and get this get Gorsuch in there and then if they get another one get the most conservative originalist they possibly can. Uh, all right, Ken in Mississippi, WBUV. Hey, Ken. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? You know, uh, I, I, it's, I'm not trying to change the subject or anything, but no, sure, oh, go oh, ahead. What's up? Okay. Well, I want to know why can't we impeach those judges that are not following Constitution? Well, we can. We can. The Congress can. I mean, that that is doable. There, there is a, an, of course. And when you see this, you know, a, a judge can accept bribes and say, "Oh no, it's a lifetime appointment." I mean, there, there are definitely. Of course, that's also a criminal matter. But there are definitely removal uh, procedures for judges. A few judges. Have, I, I think I read even on this show on air some of the judges. There was one judge who was removed for drunkenness on the bench back in like the late 18th century, I think. So it can happen. Well, I'm, I'm just saying. It doesn't have to be a crime uh, in the terms of a criminal uh, sense, but I'm saying, you know, they're not adhering to the oath of office. That should be a high crime. Oh, I, I think I think that there are some judges. I think that what Judge Watson has done in Hawaii is grounds for it's it's certainly not criminal, and I would never suggest that, but it's certainly grounds for removal from office. I mean, there's no constitutional or legal grounding for his decision, and he's. Uh, possibly pushing us towards a constitutional crisis where you have the judiciary just deciding they can overrule the president on something that they don't have the authority to overrule and they don't have the authority to be honestly looking at in the first place, if you're really going to be clear. Um, But uh, the problem here becomes once you start removing judges based upon decisions, it looks like now not only is the That's the next step in the judicial wars, Ken. Not only do we have fights over appointments of judges, then we'll have fights over removal of judges, right? And that's and you can see this is also part of the discussion you have when you have recalls of governors and others. Anyway, Ken, thanks for calling in from Mississippi. Uh, Team, much more coming. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. So we have additional information after that terrorist attack in London yesterday. The attacker is uh, uh, Khalid Massoud, 52 years old. According to the Daily Mail here, he once stabbed a man in the face. Uh, and had been on the radar of the domestic security service in the UK in the past. Um, he was he was known to them, but quote not part of the current intelligence picture. And the probe into his links to jihadism was considered historical, and he was deemed quote peripheral. So he killed four and injured twenty nine in Westminster uh, yesterday, and. As is the case with so many of these jihadist incidents, right afterwards you have the uh, Amak News Agency, which is the unofficial, um, the unofficial outlet of the Islamic State, and uh, Site, which is a uh, Site Intelligence Group. Uh, they do excellent work. They were the first ones that I know of to see this. That the Islamic State's Amak News Agency has taken responsibility for uh, this attack. So ISIS is saying that he is that this is one of theirs. 
and he is one of theirs, not necessarily meaning that he was trained by them or that he was even in direct contact with them, but they have said in the past that they would like anyone who wants to partake in the jihad on behalf of the Islamic State to just do it and to attack in their home countries. Uh, the territory that ISIS controls in Iraq and Syria is getting smaller with each day. Iraqi forces, with the assistance of the United States, uh, with U.S. Uh, special operations personnel and uh, airstrikes, uh, they are taking back territory in Iraq from ISIS, uh, the largest Sunni-majority city in Iraq. Uh, just a quick note that Iraq is broken down by th into three large ethnic groups, uh, Sunni, Shia, and, uh, well, religious-slash-ethnic groups, Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. The Kurds are Sunnis, but the Kurds are ethnically distinct from Arabs. The Sunni and Shia Arabs in Iraq are uh, the other two major groups. The largest by population is actually Shia Arabs, and they tend to be uh, predominant in the southern part of the country, from Basra all of, I mean, in the Persian Gulf all the way up into Baghdad and the surrounding areas of Baghdad. And then as you go further north, there are areas that are mixed, and you get into places where there's a greater Kurdish population until you're in what is effectively Kurdistan, uh, with Erbil and, and other areas. And then you have uh, the Sunni Arab majority parts of Iraq are to the west of Baghdad in Anbar province, where you have Ramadi and Fallujah, cities that are well known to Americans because of the intense and, uh, and brutal fighting there. If you've ever seen American Sniper, you've seen depictions of what it was like in Fallujah and Ramadi. And then there's Mosul, which is the largest Sunni Arab majority city, although it's bisected by the Tigris River. And there are there's a Kurdish dominance on the eastern part of the city traditionally and Sunni Arab uh, dominance on the western part of the city, although it is a mixed city. And the Iraqi forces have taken back the east bank or the east of the uh, Tigris River from ISIS, from the Islamic State. And now they're trying to take the entirety of the western part of the city as well. And then from there, push on and make sure that they have uh, closed the exits for jihadists that would try to head back across the Syrian border. And then eventually they're going to make their way, well, not the same forces, but our proxies and allies on the ground will hopefully encircle and uh, encircle Raqqa and take it back from the Islamic State. As that is happening, unfortunately, there will be an acceleration of attack plotting by ISIS, uh, fellow travelers, ISIS, ideological allies, even some uh, recruits perhaps who have made their way back into Western Europe and maybe even into America who were able to train with the Islamic State and got out of there before the, the current security picture turned against them. But it is an ideological war we are in, and therefore all that one needs is to be a believer in this ideology and then mobilize for an attack, an attack that can have uh, horrific uh, mass casualty consequences. And we've seen this in many places across Europe in recent years, as well as here in America. And we know that a uh, Utah uh, native in this country, an American, was killed in the attack and his wife was badly injured. And they were celebrating, I believe, an anniversary there. The evil of the jihadis is something that is uh, difficult to overstate. I mean, the the mindset that they have is so uh, dark and vile 
and destructive. Uh, and I think it is sometimes worth taking a step back to say, to, to look into how does one decide that killing innocent people, how could anyone come to this conclusion? Uh, of course, there is a celestial justification. There's a, a connection to, they believe, uh, to their creator here and his prof- and the prophet Muhammad. And uh, there's certainly a doctrinal, a doctrinal basis jihadists believe for these actions. But if you really listen to what jihadists say and how they view themselves, it's a lot of it is a narrative of victimology. A lot of it comes from a sense that uh, jihadist, uh, jihadism is really a grievance ideology. And so that's why when you hear jihadists talking about, sure, there's the, we're gonna, I'm going to be a martyr, I'm going to fight for Allah, I'm going to kill all the infidels. There are those specific, uh, those, uh, specific aspects of it that are just part of a jihadist mindset. But you'll also hear talk about, you know, what would be expect you'd expect to hear from those who are concerned with social justice, and they'll talk about racial uh, inequality in the West, and they'll talk about our uh, lack of morality. They'll talk about what we, uh, you, you, if you listen to the way jihadists talk about U.S. foreign policy and its effects around the world, it's very similar to what you would expect to hear from a lot of professors on American college campuses that we are always the problem, that we are killing innocents men, women, and children wantonly in primarily Muslim countries, and that we do so without any second thought. And you can see that there is this uh, crossover into a lot of the same narratives and themes that the anti-American American left has adopted. And so I, I think that's always an interesting uh, that's always an interesting place to analyze this ideology, other than, of course, the I'm, I'm going to go with the with the, the virgins and the afterlife and martyrdom and the other aspects of jihadism that are so uh, well known. But it is a grievance-based ideology. Uh, on the one hand, they believe that they are these great warriors and that they're going to have this afterlife that will be glorious, and they're doing this wonderful thing by killing people that are just trying to go about their lives, killing people that are in this case uh, celebrating an anniversary or just going for a stroll, taking a break from you know, lunch or the office or trying to go visit a loved one, whatever the case may be, uh, jihadists believe that they are doing something that will be rewarded in the afterlife. I mean, it is a it is a true perversion. It is an inversion and a perversion of the most basic and fundamental morality, and it is widespread. Uh, now, this is where people say, what, are the, what is the percentage? And we've talked a little bit about this here on the show, a percentage of the broader Muslim world. The truth is that Jihadists are a relatively small percentage, of course, but it's a very large number of people when you start to look at tens of thousands of active fighters in the Islamic State alone. Never mind when you look at pew polling of attitudes about Sharia and attitudes about death for apostasy and the role of women. You have tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world who could at least at some level be considered Islamists, meaning that Islam is the political system that should override all other systems, and it's the only legitimate political system. And if you believe that the only legitimate political system is one that is based in a theology that there's no central authority for, by the way, there are many different interpretations of what the Quran says, and, and in, in fact, a lot of the fighting that you see to this day, including in places like Iraq and in the broader Middle East, there's a civil there's a civil war right now in Islam between moderates and Islamists and hardliners and jihadists. 
but there's also a civil war going on uh, in different places at different times between Shia and Sunni. And that's just a schism from the earliest days of this religious tradition. Uh, this is when they just, there were some who thought that uh, they should follow. Uh, Shia comes from Shia, uh, Shia Ali or Shiat Ali or the partisans of Ali. And this is just a tribal succession feud that has now spiraled out into a major religion. And you have about 15 to 20 percent of the world are Shia and then the vast majority uh, of the Muslim world. And then a vast majority of them are Sunni. So when we start to talk about Islam, automatically it's there are these insecurities that will come up in the true believer, in the hardliner, because they say that they have the only truth and they have the only political system that is not only is it the only political system they believe is just, but it's the only political system that is legitimate. And this is why Islamists and democracy don't mix. And in the West, we, we often walk away from that and we refuse to be honest about what the implications are. Uh, but if the only legitimacy for the state comes from an interpretation of the Koran, which is what Islamists, not all Muslims, but Islamists believe, uh, then you're really just waiting around until someone decides that a revolution or a coup or some form of violence is a, necess is a necessary tool in installing Islamism. Now, jihadism is, is a, a level beyond that, a step beyond that, uh, which is what al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and, and other uh, similar Islamic terror, radical Islamic terrorist groups around the world have adopted as their fundamental ideology. Um, but there's also, back to this point about grievance ideology, there is this sense for the true believer and the, uh, the different ways of talking about the groups even is, is imperfect. But there's a sense for the true believer that Islam is the one great, one true faith. Of course, all other faiths, they, they'll say they'll give this lip service to other people of the book for Jews and Christians. But uh, for one, anybody outside of that within the Islamic faith is considered a, a, a total infidel and uh, Hindus are considered polytheists, which that's that's the worst uh, in in Islamic and traditional uh, is, Islamist Islam. Is being a polytheist is even worse. But of course, we see the relationship between Islamic hardliners and Jews and Christians, and it's it's it tends to be one of uh, hostility, if not outright violence. Um, but they believe that they are the inheritors of the one true, not just the one true faith, but the one great civilization that is Islamic civilization. And they look around, and there have been many books written about this, and it, it, it's a, uh, generally speaking, it's the post-Ottoman period where this really applies, because after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, World War I, there was no more caliphate anymore. And so you have many Muslims that, again, small percentage, but large number of people, many Muslims who believe that this one true faith tradition has been subjugated by all these infidels. And they look at the, the powerlessness and the relative poverty and the irrelevancy on a global scale of much of the Muslim world in, in past decades, and that creates a sense uh, of its own rage. So on the one hand, they believe they have, the, uh, they have this sense of self-righteousness. This is the one true faith, the one great faith, and, we, and it's, it's not just faith, it's politics too. This is the way we must live our lives. This is the only truth that can exist. And on the other, there's a sense of self-pity, which is look at what's happened to us and it's all because we've gone away from this traditional interpretation of Islam, an interpretation that would take us back. Uh, they, they believe uh, the whole point of this, and this is where we get the term Salafism, by the way. Salaf is like a forefather, a founding father, 
They want to go back to the Rashidun, which is the rightly guided caliphs. After the Prophet Muhammad, the first few in succession after that are considered to be, that's the golden age of Islam. And before Muhammad, of course, before Muhammad, who they believe was the vessel for Allah to recite the Quran, you have what was known as the ignorance or the period of ignorance, the Jahiliyyah. And they view those of us who don't adopt this. And again, I'm talking about hardliners here. So you don't have to tell me, oh, I've got this Muslim neighbor who's wonderful. I do too. I have close friends who are Muslims. That's not the point. We're talking about hardliners, Islamists, and jihadists. Uh, but they believe that everybody who doesn't adopt their stance on Islam is effectively in a neo-Jahiliya, a new state of ignorance. And that's when they can be considered takfir, which is kicked out of the faith, even Muslims, uh, which excuses the jihadists killing fellow Muslims who don't take their violent radical view. Um, anyway, that's this is a, a discussion that really is, well, one will be ongoing here on the show and is also worthy of, of, of book-length analysis. But as we look at these uh, individuals who engage in these attacks against the West that are clearly not going to bring about that are, that are trading their lives for the lives of innocent people that are doing have done nothing to them. Um, it's important to understand the ideology if you want to counter it, and also to give us a sense of the longevity, unfortunately, of this strain of radicalism that is not going away anytime soon. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Team, hitting a break, and we will be right back. Got some calls coming in here. Andy in Florida on the iHeart app. What's up, Andy? Hey, so I was listening to your comments about the about um, Islam, and that was excellent information. Um, I don't I don't think I've ever heard anybody give an as in depth explanation of the religious, cultural, and political realities of the whole situation there. Thanks. So, kudos to you for that. But but there was one thing. I mean. That, that concerns me, and you kept mentioning that the Islamists are a small minority of all Muslims, and I agree, and that jihadists are, are even only a fraction of Yeah, those. they're a minority within the minority, sure. Right, but one thing that concerns me is that a lot of the so-called moderate Muslims are people who would you know, they would say, well, I would never do something like that. I would never strap on a, uh, you know, I would never strap on a suicide vest. I would never, I would be horrified if my child did that or whatever. But at the same time, they won't, a lot of them won't really strenuously object to it. So they kind of support it by not, uh, by not rejecting it, I guess, uh, passively support it might be another way of saying it. You know, it's like some people I've talked to on the abortion issue, they're like, oh, oh, I would never, never have an abortion. I don't believe in abortion personally, but I would never tell anybody else what they should do. And well, that's kind of the way I see a lot of, a lot of Muslims is like, well, I would never do anything like that. I can live in peace with Christians and, 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 and other people around me, but they will never, you know, take a stand against other, against Islamists. You know, well, I mean, you, you look at the you look at the support for even in Western societies within the Muslim population, support for suicide bombing, specifically suicide bombing as a quote resistance tactic against Israelis, uh, and it's appalling how how high the percentage is. Uh, it depends on which country. You know, the different countries have uh, different levels of support for Sharia for. 
uh, you know, amputation for theft, for any number of, you go down the line and look at uh, for death for apostasy, meaning those who leave the Islamic faith. Uh, but I also think it's worth pointing out that the more, you know, the countries that have uh, a greater acceptance among the population for human rights abuses tend to be the countries with a higher percentage of believing, practicing uh, Muslims, meaning that the more Islamist and more Islamic a country is, generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, but there's a correlation with a lot of these regressive ideological positions. You look at Saudi Arabia, look at Somalia, they'll point to a place like, they'll say, well, look at Indonesia, which does have its problems when it comes to jihadism. Uh, but there are you know, there are Buddhists in Indonesia. There are other faith traditions in uh, in sizable numbers that, well, I'm running out of time here, but uh, thanks for calling in, Andy. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Got some breaking news for you all from Politico. Trump is demanding a vote Friday on the Obamacare replacement. That's the latest that we are seeing here. President Trump wants a vote in the House uh, in the House for the Republican plan. And uh, this is according to White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney. If the bill fails, Trump is prepared to move on and leave Obamacare in place. What? All right, let's get into it. We got Ovik Roy on the line now. He's the president of the Foundation for Equal Opportunity Research, Forbes Opinion Editor and Healthcare Expert uh, and an MD, right, Ovik? You're an MD, aren't you? Well, I went to med school, but, you know, I never got my license. My mother has never forgiven me. There you go. Well, he went to medical school, everybody. So there you go. All right. So, uh, Ovik, um, I'm just I just saw this now that Trump is demanding a vote. Uh, What 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 has changed, if anything, with this bill? I mean, we've had you on before to talk about it. Uh, Why why are we at this point now where Trump is demanding a vote on it? And I thought we were going to negotiate on it. What is happening? Well, I think the big thing that happened was this report uh, yesterday from Phil Klein of the Washington Examiner that followed a meeting that Michael Lee, a uh, senator from Utah, had with the Senate parliamentarian, in which the Senate parliamentarian told Mike Lee that uh, actually a lot of things uh, House conservatives wanted to do are possible through reconciliation because um, uh, they, the leadership had the understanding that that wasn't true, that uh, there were limited things that they could do through reconciliation in terms of repealing Obamacare's regulation. So that uh, report uh, sent uh, the world a, a, a flutter. And, uh, and now we're in a situation where, you know, House Republicans are saying, hey, we want a bill that really is more aggressive at going after Obamacare's regulations. And you know what? I, I don't blame them for that, because at the end of the day, it's Obamacare's regulations that are really the problem in the bill. That's something I've been saying for years. I've said it on your show before. Uh, so that's it's good to try to, to get at the regulations if you can. So long as it doesn't jeopardize the ability of the bill to go through reconciliation. So if there's, if there's an opportunity to do more of that, great. Um, and let's get back to work. Now, the uh, the essential benefits, that's what I've been seeing in the discussion turn to today. Can you explain to everybody what the what the argument is over essential benefits and, and what kind of benefits? First of all, who decides what is essential? How is that implemented in the marketplace under Obamacare? 
Uh, how do insurance companies have to comply? Who measures that? I mean, what, what give, give us a bit of a, a deep dive into, because this is now at the heart of the debate, as I understand it, the essential benefits provisions in Obamacare that do they just affect individual plans? Do they affect all plans? What do we need to know? So prior to the prior to Obamacare, uh, there were no federal regulations governing uh, uh, the market for people who buy health insurance on their own, the so-called individual market. Uh, there were uh, regulations, federal regulations around employer-based insurance, around Medicare and Medicaid, because those are obviously federal programs. Uh, but there were no regulations at the federal level in terms of uh, the plans that people bought on their own if they didn't get it from their employer or the government. That was all done at the state level. And by the way, every state in America has uh, what you could call state-based essential health benefits, benefit mandates in terms of what plans could uh, uh, were, were required to cover. So, for example, when I lived in New York, uh, New York State had a law that every health insurance plan sold in New York State, whether it was individual or employer-based or anything else, had to cover acupuncture services because the acupuncture lobby really campaigned for that and probably some got some campaign donations from the state legislature, and the state legislature passed this law saying every plan in New York has to have acupuncture and that and those benefit mandates every individual mandate it depends on it depends on the mandate itself and what it's asking to cover but broadly speaking they add up and add you know a percent a percent here a percent there your premium cost you know before you know it your premiums are 10 15 percent higher than they were before so it can it can make a difference and what obamacare did was obamacare created this uh, federal level of essential health benefits so every plan sold now that you buy on your own has, has to meet these federal requirements of making sure it covers hospital you know, hospital care, doctor's visits, uh, you know, knee surgeries. So that's, that part is not controversial. We expect health insurance to cover those things. The things that are controversial that were really additive in Obamacare is uh, maternity coverage, uh, covering you know, the, the, the labor and delivery if you, if you have a baby, addiction services, so substance abuse, and mental health, which is not normally in conventional health insurance plans. Um, and a few other things like that. So substance abuse, mental health, and pregnancy were the three things that were really different about Obamacare's regulations versus uh, the state-based regulations. That's the economic point, that if you, if you repeal uh, federal EHBs under Obamacare, you get rid of those specific requirements net-net about things like maternity coverage, and that could drive costs down. However, it's important to note that it's not like if you repeal Obamacare's benefit requirements that you go to zero because every state has its own laundry list of benefits, unfortunately, that plans are required to cover. So why is this such a fight? Is it really just that there are some who believe that they really can't do this through reconciliation? And by the way, that that seems to me to that excuse, which which sounded uh, some were making it sound like it was ironclad in the early days of the American Health Care Act has gotten flimsier by the day. Well, uh, you know, in in, uh, leadership's defense, if you want to call it that, the the leaked draft of the bill that was that was dated February 10th did include a repeal of federal essential health benefit mandates. Uh, But that that repeal was taken out because people in the House, Paul Ryan and others, were told by Senate people that uh, the uh, or or perhaps told by the parliamentarian that EHBs were were likely to be challenged. By Democrats is not being uh, 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 not being able to go through the reconciliation process. And I actually can tell you, I have Democratic sources uh, that say that in fact Democrats are very much intending to to fight uh, on that premise. They're going to fight whether to see whether these regulatory rollbacks can be uh, repealed through uh, reconciliation. So that that fight's going to happen. 
but, but, you know, I think what House conservatives are saying is, hey, let's at least try. And if it fails, it fails, you know, but at least let's try to repeal more of the regulations. And I think I will say that I do think that there's there's a degree to which people are overrating how much essential health benefits are at the heart of why premiums have gone up under Obamacare. It's part of the problem for sure, but it's not the biggest driver of the problem. It's more like the third biggest driver. The two bigger drivers are the age bands that make younger people pay a lot more for health insurance and um, actuarial value requirements, which make the financial payouts of health insurance a lot more generous and therefore drive up the cost. Those are the two, the the bronze, silver, gold plan thing. That's actuarial value. So those are the two things that make Obamacare plans really, really expensive. EHBs is about third on the list. And so what's good about the bill is those other two things I mentioned, the age bands and the actuarial value requirements, those things are in the bill. They're already repealing those. And I think what House Conservatives is saying, hey, let's try, to, let's try to push that ball down the field further. Let's repeal all, ideally, of Obamacare's federal regulations. If not, let's try to repeal more of them. And EHBs are kind of the next step forward. What does Senator Mike Lee, for example, want the health care bill to look like? Do we have a sense or do we have uh, has he told us Uh, if there people talk about the Freedom Caucus in the House? I mean, the the most free market health care advocates in the Congress want uh, in the Congress right now want this bill to look like what? I mean, if they had their way, if they got to draft this, if the 30 some odd members of Congress who say right now there are no vote were told, well, just go off and do your thing and we'll pass whatever you want. What would it look like? Well, well, let me just slightly challenge the, the premise of the question. I'm not convinced that uh, the, the House Freedom Caucus has many members who I respect greatly, but they're not necessarily the most free market people uh, in Congress when it comes to health care. A lot of the Freedom Caucus people have been behind nuking a reform of the, uh, the tax break for employer-based coverage, which is at the heart of all the market distortion that the federal government has introduced into health care. So that, to me, has been a real disappointment, is every single draft of this bill, the reform of the employer market for health insurance has gotten worse. And that's largely at the behest, in my understanding, because of the Freedom Caucus. So on that very, very important aspect of market-based reform, they're on the wrong side, or many of their members are on the wrong side of that debate. And I'd love to talk to them more about that. Well, who is, who's, a hardcore, who's a hardcore free market healthcare guy, or who, who are the individuals that are in that category? Well, look, there are, a lot, there are a lot of people who are right on some issues, I'd say. You know, there's, there's, is there anyone who's absolutely perfect? I wouldn't say there is. But, you know, I mean, I think people like Paul Ryan have been great advocates for free market health care. You know, this bill hasn't been so great. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, over the, over the history of health care, he's been, he's been very strong. I think on this bill, uh, there's a lot of limitations. You know, there's people in the Senate like, well, it used to be Tom Coburn. Now, I think Orrin Hatch has been a guy who's put forth a lot of good ideas. On the Senate side, I think some of these younger senators, Bill Cassidy, for example, is a guy who's doing a really great job. I think he's going to have a role uh, in what goes forward in the Senate. Marco Rubio has put forward in his presidential campaign some free market reform ideas. So there's lots of people out there um, who had, you know, good ideas, and are, you know, are any of them perfect? If you, you know, from a, if you're rating them on the purity of their free market tierness, um, you know, some are better than others, but nothing is perfect. Because healthcare, there's so much government in healthcare that you have to pick your battles in terms of what you're trying to unwind. But, but what's the what's um, the fundamental architecture of the most, the the most free market and yet still realistic yeah. basis for a bill that the GOP could pass? Okay, so there now we're getting somewhere. So on that basis, uh, you'd have to actually take the AHCA and really make some significant changes to it, because the problem with the AHCA 
is it's been watered down even more by the repeal uh, or the rollback of employer tax reform. That's an employer health insurance tax reform. That's got to be fixed in the bill. Um, so that that you want to put back in. That's something, by the way, that the leadership actually wanted to put back in or have in the bill. And it was the Freedom Caucus, as I said, that got rid of it. So that's an important thing to change. So let's score one for the leadership there. On the issue of Obamacare's regulations, it's leadership that's been too cautious, and the House Freedom Caucus has been actually more aggressive and said, hey, let's get, others reg- get, get rid of these regulations. So score one for the House Freedom Caucus there and say that's, you know, so now they're tied, right? House Freedom Caucus is right on that one. Leadership is right on the other one. Um, on the Medicaid reform, the House Freedom Caucus has actually done some good work there. Leadership has too. So that one maybe just give each of them a half point. So, you know, it really, it really depends on which part of the bill that you're talking about. Uh, in terms of what you're critiquing or whatnot. They, I think, and that, that's what makes me optimistic, by the way. Bottom line is, I think we're going to, we can get to a, an end point with this bill where a lot of the stated concerns of the House Freedom Caucus and a lot of the stated concerns of more pragmatic conservatives can be met. We can have a bill that delivers the right amount of, of, of assistance to lower income people who are struggling to afford their health care bills while also making sure we roll back regulations and things that drive up premiums and all the things that we the, the things about Obamacare that really did work that represented a step change in the federal role in health care. What we is the whole what is the holy grail of health care reform right now? I mean, if, if there's just one thing that you could get all the different members of the House in a place and you got to tell them, guys, this is the thing without which you got nothing. What would it be? I don't know what that is because, you know, the way I look at it, Buck, is that there's, it's all about progress. You've got to move the ball down the field. And, and the question for me is, are you net-net moving the ball down the field? On Medicaid, this bill is transformative. I think it's really moving the ball down the field. The Medicaid provisions of this bill are like welfare reform times 10 in terms of how significant they are for our long-term debt and deficit problems. So the Medicaid part of this bill is very strong. The Obamacare part of this bill is not so great. Uh, they could do more. They could make it better. Let's root for them to do better. Um, there's on Medicare, which is another big part of government health care in America. That's why Bernie Sanders called his health reform his single-payer plan Medicare for all, because Medicare is single-payer. The plan does nothing, right, because Trump has said he's against Medicare reform. So on the, you know, that's one area where this bill isn't so great. And the other area would be employer-based coverage, right, equalizing the tax treatment of employer-purchased health insurance and individually purchased health insurance. This bill does not achieve that goal. And it, it, it did a better job of it two months ago than it does today. Did people that have employer-based coverage, by the way, Ovik, we hear about the Obamacare debate so much, and I, I do think it often gets lost that this is primarily about the individual market. Uh, why should people with employer-based coverage, which is still a vast majority of Americans, why should they care about what's going on with the individual market? Other than the fear of losing your job and having to buy an Obamacare plan, which is a reality for, I think, almost all of us. But, yeah. It's about half of Americans that have employer-based coverage. So there are about 300 million Americans, about 150 of them have – 150 million have employer-based coverage. Um, And that that group is important, uh, no doubt. So how does this bill affect them? Uh, Because, as you said, that's one of the important things. It's like what if – first of all, what – what are, what are we doing to make health insurance affordable for you if you do lose your job or you're in between jobs? That's number one. Number two is employer-based insurance is very expensive. We don't notice it because it's taken out of our paychecks before we receive it. You know, often I'll do speaking engagements, Buck, where I'm in a room full of people who have jobs and, you know, normal, normal everyday people, and I ask them, 
do you know how much is taken out of your paycheck every month to pay for your health insurance? And usually in, in a crowd of 100, maybe three hands go up. And those three hands go up because those people run their own businesses. So they, they know how much they're paying for health insurance because they own their own businesses. But the vast majority of people who have everyday jobs, they don't have any idea. All they know is that their wages haven't gone up in 15 years. And the reason their wages haven't gone up in 15 years is not because their compensation hasn't gone up in 15 years. It's that an increasing amount of their compensation is eaten up by what's taken out of their paycheck in health insurance premiums every year. How many people are in the individual market, Ovik? Uh, about 25 million. Right. So if 150 million are getting it for their employers, that's that's a lot more. Right? I mean, oh, you're, you're including people that get it through the government and everything else, because it would seem to be a, a majority of people do get it from their employer. Yeah, I'm saying about half, right? So uh, 300 million people in America, about 150 million uh, get their insurance from their employer. About 25 million buy it on their own, and then the rest get it from the government. Oh, right. Yeah, I was discluding the government. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I meant, I'm in, in the private insurance market. Okay. Ovik, I could talk about this stuff all night, but unfortunately, we're literally about to run into a, a hard break here, so I got to leave it there. Ovik Roy is the president of the Foundation for Equal Opportunity Research. He's Forbes Opinion Editor. And he knows a lot about this stuff. So follow him on uh, Twitter and read his stuff. Ovik, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. John in Alabama, WNTM. What's up, my friend? Hey, Buck. How you doing? Thank good, you good. for taking my call. Thank you. Um, I just, first of all, Obamacare was not designed to help people get better health care and better insurance coverage. Obamacare was designed to put private insurance companies out of business to force everybody to turn to the government and say, please take care of us because of this health insurance problem that the government uh, caused. That's what it was supposed so to So you think it was supposed to put us on a pathway to single payer at the end? People have been saying absolute, this for a while. No, no question about it. Uh, the thing about this situation, uh, and well, Sir, hello. You were talking about you were talking. I don't know if you can hear me now. Yeah, we can hear you. You were talking about you were talking about free will earlier, and I'm as I'm considered reformed theologically. But anyway, that's a whole different can of worms. Um, There's a lot of things that that years to come we are going to be grateful to God that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton and the the. Healthcare system is one of those things um, because she was going to take us to single payer it, to the point of if you don't vote Democrat, you don't get health care, health insurance or health care at all. Um, I firmly believe that. And Obama was a statist and Hillary is a statist. And, you know, but I just I don't trust Paul Ryan. I voted for Mr. Trump because I think. I believe that it's going to take somebody, a maverick, not like John McCain maverick, but a real maverick that will take on the, the, the people in Washington and try to bust up um, what, the cartel, for lack of a better term, that is in Washington. That's the Republican establishment, the Democratic establishment, and the bureaucrats. And I think that's – we're seeing that. I think – you know, had anybody on the Republican side won where Mr. Trump did, the attacks would have been the same um, because they were, you know, they were all hell-bent for socialism, and, you know, they screwed up and forgot about the people in the middle of the country. But I, I just – I don't trust Paul Ryan, 
Um, I don't know where we go from here. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just I don't trust Paul Ryan. <laughs> well, I don't all. think you're the only one. I mean, you got people that are not willing to uh, go forward on this and not willing to vote in favor of, of the bill that Paul Ryan's saying is, is a great idea. So, uh, John, I appreciate you uh, calling in. Shields high, and uh, thank you very much for uh, your thoughts. Uh, we are going to talk about trade, and then if we have time, we're going to talk about intelligence, as in uh, intelligence collection and Russia and Trump. Oh, my. We've got a lot more coming. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Trump preparing orders to review trade deals. That is the headline on Reuters. Here's the lead. The Trump administration is preparing new executive orders to re-examine all 14 U.S. free trade agreements and review government procurement policies to aid American companies, according to two administration officials. The North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, with Mexico and Canada, will top the list of trade deals to be reviewed, which affect 20 countries from the Americas to Asia. They, uh, these officials spoke on condition, okay, on anonymity. We don't need to know that. Fine. That's what's going on. What is the real deal here? We're joined by Derek Scissors. He's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's an Asia economist and trade expert. Derek, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. So Trump sounds like he's uh, taking action now. We've been hearing the rhetoric for a while about trade deals, and he's been saying bad deals, terrible negotiators, other leaders are smarter. We're all familiar with the rhetoric What's true about NAFTA? What's good about it and what's not good about it for Americans? Where can Trump possibly make this better and where is this bluster? So I'm going to start by saying he, the campaign stuff was bluster, but he can make it better, which sounds like a contradiction, but I don't think it is. So why do I say the campaign uh, rhetoric was bluster? If you look back, NAFTA goes into effect January 1st, 1994. And on the campaign trail, the president was saying how it cost millions of American jobs. But if you look at the numbers, U.S. labor force participation rises, U.S. manufacturing employment rises, U.S. manufacturing wages rise. They rise all the way through the end of that decade. They rise for five five years after NAFTA goes into effect. So I'm not saying NAFTA did that. I'm saying when you say NAFTA hurt the U.S. economy, you can't really find any evidence. So that's the bluster part. Now, can you make NAFTA better? Yes, you can. I, you know, I kind of gave away the punchline. NAFTA was signed in January 1st, 1994, went into effect rather. It was negotiated in 1992. It's 25 years old. We can do better. We can upgrade it. We can upgrade it for things the U.S. is good at, like digital trade. We are really good at trade online, and other countries should respect our, our ability to export in that way. So um, saying NAFTA is terrible and killed the U.S. economy is false. Saying you can renegotiate NAFTA and make it a better deal is true, and that's what we hope the president does. What, what are some areas of, if one was forced to find areas of criticism for NAFTA, I would, I would assume it's fair to say, not just for a trade deal, but any policy, there are usually going to be some benefits and some drawbacks. What Are, are there any drawbacks or real, uh, real drawbacks for the American worker that came from this trade deal? We, is, is, it, did it accelerate outsourcing and offshoring, and, or is that, again, just the perception but not the reality? No, no trade deal is going to be good for everybody in America. That's just impossible. Um, and so anybody selling you on that, like everybody's going to benefit from this. You know, we have 300 and 
20 million people here. They're all in totally different circumstances. The trade's not going to be good for, for all of them. The problem is if you fix the trade deal so it doesn't hurt someone, you're going to lose something. You can't just magically wave a wand and say, hey, you know, this is one area where we don't want your exports coming in because it'll put Americans out of work. That's a real concern, but then the Mexicans are going to say the same thing. Um, I don't really see NAFTA in 94 as having any flaws that we that that in 1994 we needed to fix. I think now there are a lot that the potential for American export to Mexico is a lot higher. Um, and I think you know that's what we should be looking at. We shouldn't be looking at closing up America. We should be looking at opening up Mexico. Um, you know, hopefully they'll cooperate. Well, I, I, I want to ask you about the benefits of it, Derek, but also I feel like you alluded to there are some people. I mean, this is, for example, in the case of immigration, people like there are people who say immigration is bad. People say immigration is or sorry, illegal immigration. People say illegal immigration is bad. Illegal immigration is good. Uh, the most thorough research that I've read on this says, well, it depends on who you are, where you're talking about, and what you know. You have to specify beyond just illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, for some business owners, illegal immigration is a good thing in a certain area, a certain time. And those workers that are displaced by that, it's bad. Give me who uh, who lost out, just so we can identify it and have a, a a realistic sense of it. Who lost out from NAFTA? And then I want to ask you. Uh, the American people benefit from NAFTA how? But first tell me, who can be considered to have lost out in some way from the NAFTA? Because clearly there's a there's been a tapping into a concern over NAFTA, uh, a- anger over NAFTA. It can't all just be because it sounds good to say that we have a bad trade deal and that's why American workers are out of work. There has to be something. Well, I, I would assume there's something more than that. Right. I know you're. I know you're pushing me on this, and I appreciate it. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna dodge for one more second, and then answer the question. The dodge is a lot of the criticism of NAFTA is just because we have a trade deficit with Mexico, and as somebody who believes in free trade, like me, I don't think a trade deficit means that you lose. I think the president is wrong when he says that. So a lot of times you'll get people saying, "This is why it was bad for us to sign NAFTA because we have a trade deficit, and that means we lost jobs." And I just disagree with that. Now, having said that, if you want to talk about, yeah. All trade agreements have some people who don't benefit as much as everyone else because everyone benefits from cheaper goods, but some people, they, they might lose their jobs or their pay might go down. Auto parts is an example of where you see like there's a really mixed outcome. Auto parts go back across the, across the U.S.-Mexican border over and over again. And before, we made them all here. So when the president is pressuring auto firms not to move to Mexico, he's not necessarily pressuring them because they're going to make cars in Mexico. He's pressuring them about parts. And if you were an American auto parts worker, I think you, know, you may get cheaper Mexican food. You know, that, that's a good thing, but I think your, your wages probably dropped or you had to find another job or maybe you couldn't find another job. So I think if I, if I picked one up, I would say auto parts. Uh, trucking. There are some sectors where people did not gain nearly as much, and they could have actually lost because they lost jobs. They didn't lose jobs right after NAFTA because we had a, we had a very good employment, um, very good job market in this country. But maybe in the 2000s, after a recession, they didn't get the jobs back that they had, or they didn't get the wages back they had. I would locate them in auto parts production and trucking services. Those were two things that come to mind. Now, net-net, good things that came from NAFTA. Trump's trashing NAFTA a lot these days, saying it's the worst deal ever. You clearly think that that's wrong. You've made the case. What are the good things in NAFTA? 
Well, I, I mean, you know, I, in both of these cases, I sound like I'm, do- I'm, I'm dodging your question. I, I <laughs> I'm asking you for good and bad. I'm, right, I know, and you, you keep I'm, giving I'm, me neutral. Go ahead. That's right. And the reason I'm giving you neutral is because we exaggerate the importance of trade to the U.S. economy a lot. What matters in our economy, you know, and I work on trade, and I have to say this all the time, like what I do isn't nearly as important as tax reform. You know, that's just the way it is. If we get our tax system right, trade doesn't matter nearly as much as that. Um, so, you know, even the, both the positive and the, the negative sides of this are both can be exaggerated by people. I don't want to say like NAFTA caused that U.S. employment increase. I, I would say we had an employment increase and NAFTA was part of that. Um, we got cheaper oil from Mexico. We got cheaper food prices from Mexico. Let's talk about food prices. Um, we get food all year round at a lower price. Uh, vegetables and fruit mostly, but but also a little bit of beef and and something that's very near and near, dear to my heart, which is chocolate. Me uh, too. I can't really I can't really say chocolate is crucial for poor families. Uh, it seems like it's crucial for me, but that's my own problem. But vegetables and fruit and meat being cheaper and being available year round that can make a difference for people who don't have a lot of money. And so that's where I would pu- I would put the biggest gain in in NAFTA. It's not something fancy like. We created millions of American jobs. That happened because we had good economic policies, and when we lose them, it's because we have bad economic policies. But having Mexican agriculture come in, even though you know it's competitive competition for American farmers, can really help poor people because food is such a big part of their budget. That's where I would go for the biggest benefit. Now, Reuters saying that Trump is looking at all what is it? All 14 U.S. free trade agreements. Uh, where are the places where you would advise? That there's, well, I mean, you've also said you're basically telling us to, you know, manage your expectations, everybody. Trade deals aren't, you know, not everyone's going to be rolling around in a Maserati in a, in a McMansion because of a new trade deal. We get that. Okay, fine. Fair enough. But where are some of the places where the administration could do things that have a an impact that is felt by a large segment, at least, of America looking at these 14 free trade deals? Well, here's the thing. The biggest deal that affected Americans the most uh, and negatively is is when China entered the WTO, and that's not a free trade agreement. So that's not going to be reviewed as far as I understand under the president's executive order. Uh, not that they aren't looking at it, not that the administration doesn't care. I'm not accusing them of ignoring it at all. I'm just saying it's not, it's not part of this executive order. Um, I, I, to me, the way you make uh, you, the way you turn this executive order into something positive is you say, look, we can't go back in time. We can't go back in time 15 years. We can't go back in time 20 years. Whatever happened back then, good or bad, scissors is right, scissors is wrong, we, we can't fix that. What we can do is, is look at the trade agreements we have and say, this is how we can improve them, and this is what we're going to do going forward. This is going to be our new trade model going forward. That's what I really want from this administration, and that could have really profound effects depending on who we sign a trade deal with. If we get the right model and we start signing trade agreements based on the right model with Europe, with Britain, with Japan, then you will get not everybody driving a Maserati, but nonetheless, you really will see huge benefits for the United States. So what are not, some of the what are some of the essential uh, goals that would have to exist in that new model? Well, I think that the, the, I would start with again as a free trader, and I hope this is where the Trump people start with. Imports are not bad for the United States. Every, or normal Americans every day choose to buy imports because that's what's good for them. So the idea that imports are bad needs to be taken off the table. What's bad is when other countries 
uh, restrict our exports, when they uh, promote subsidies in their own country that, that uh, block American exports because the, the production there is subsidized, so American goods are not competitive, even though they would be if it was, if it was an open market. What's also bad is when other countries violate our, our IP. The best thing the United States does is innovate, and we don't just innovate in advanced technology. We innovate in everything. We innovate from people in their garages. We innovate in, in ways to tweak your websites to make them more useful. So it, people stealing our IP needs to stop. People subsidizing their production so that we don't get to export as much to them. We're not going to be able to stop that, but we need to lower it. Those kinds of goals saying trade is good, we want more trade, and we want people to stop undermining America's advantages in trade. That's the kind of thing that's going to make trade a lot better for the U.S. So specifically, the Trump administration could make some real headway with China on trade. Well, I mean, we can adopt the right policies to make headway with China, and China is is uh, Canada is our biggest trade partner, but China is our biggest trade problem. Meaning, we have more problems in our trade relationship with China than we do with Canada, even if we trade about the same with the two of them. So we can adopt the right policies. We can say, look, we're gonna we're gonna welcome Chinese firms and their imports, but if you if you've taken stolen American IP. Then you're not. You know, other Chinese firms can export to the United States, but not you because you're you're a thief. We're going to say, look, you have heavy subsidies that are blocking American goods here. Um, you know, you can either lower those subsidies, give us more market access, or we're going to retaliate, and we're going to retaliate the way we want. We're not going to retaliate dollar for dollar in whatever field you're subsidizing. We're going to retaliate where we want to sub- retaliate. And if you set up a trade agreement like that that says, hey, countries that don't subsidize, that don't steal IP, welcome to America. But countries that do, we, these are the these are the ways we're going to retaliate. That's the right model that would really improve our relationship with China. Of course, the Chinese have to go along, uh, and if they don't, you know, we're going to we're going to trade less, less with them. And that's probably the right outcome if they don't go along. And border adjustment tax gotten talked about a lot in the last few weeks. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I like the border adjustment tax, and I know a lot of people who don't like it, and it's, it's a pretty clear-cut thing. If, you, if you're an importer, um, and I like imports, I'm not against importers, it's going to make your imports more expensive. But I'll, I'll tell you why I like the border adjustment tax. Um, the president ran on, and actually Secretary Clinton part to some extent ran on, and Senator Sanders ran on, and most Ted Cruz ran on. Most A lot of American politicians have run on the fact that trade hasn't been good to American workers in the last 15 years, say. And what the border adjustment tax does is it raises money for the Congress so they can do hopefully good things with it. But what we know it does is it says if you're producing in America, you have a better tax, you get better taxation rules than if, than if you're producing overseas. And that's going to bring American money back to the United States, and it's going to mean that more, more foreign countries as well are going to produce here. So that's what I like about the border adjustment tax. Yes, it's not perfect, uh, and I understand why people oppose it. But if you and I, you and I are talking about, and, and a lot of people voted in 2016 on the basis of American workers need to be treated better, the border adjustment tax is part of a tax reform that's going to make America more competitive. We don't have to punish anybody else. We can do it ourselves. Our own policy, our own control will be more competitive, and our trade uh, will be will deliver more benefits to the U.S. So it will help jobs in this country. That's a yes. manufacturing and elsewhere. It, it, it does have that effect because some economists like to pretend that, oh, it's going to be terrible. It won't have any difference. You don't buy that. No, I do not. I, like I said, I am not trying to sell border adjustment on being perfect, but you know what basically it's going to do is it's going to make buying some things more expensive and it's going to bring and it's going to create more jobs. So, you know, you know the story about the one-armed economist on the one hand and the other hand and, you know, yeah, of course. economists are always saying that, but that's what economics is, it's about trade-offs. The way I see it though, border adjustment addresses an issue 
that not only got the president elected, but but it changed the whole last election. The American people said, we want more jobs. We want better jobs. We want high-paying jobs. We want more people in the labor force. We want people coming back and working. Border adjustment, it's not costless, but it's going to help that. All right. Derek Scissors, scholar at American Enterprise Institute. And uh, Derek, anywhere you want to direct people to read your stuff? Well, uh, you could either go to the AEI website and you can get lots of good things that aren't just about trade. Just type American Enterprise Institute. Or you could type Derek Scissors directly into Google because I think I'm the only one in the world. There we go. You did refer to Scissors in the third person there, but it was an excellent interview, so we let it fly. I like it. (laughs) Scissors. High five, man. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for calling in. We appreciate it. All right, team, Uh, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. It is the main story on foxnews.com right now, uh, posted by James Rosen. Here's the headline. Potential smoking gun showing Obama administration spied on Trump team, source says. Uh, They go into some details here. Let me read to you from a relevant paragraph because I have a feeling that we may have to tackle this in depth and detail tomorrow. Quote, classified intelligence showing incidental collection of Trump team communications purportedly seen by committee chairman Devin Nunez and described by him in vague terms at a bombshell Wednesday afternoon news conference came from multiple sources, Capitol Hill sources told Fox News, the intelligence corroborated information about surveillance of the Trump team that was known to Nunez even before President Trump accused his pre- uh, his predecessor of having wiretapped him in a series of now infamous tweets posted on March 4th. And here we go. The intelligence is said to leave no doubt the Obama administration in its closing days was using the cover of of legitimate surveillance on foreign targets to spy on President-elect Trump, according to sources. The key here is the conclusion that the unmasking of selected U.S. persons whose names appeared in the intelligence, according to these sources, uh, adding that the paper trail leaves no other plausible purpose for the unmasking other than to damage the incoming Trump administration. Uh, if this is true, folks, we are looking at a political climate that will quickly become thermonuclear. If this is true, it is the main story on Fox News right now. If it is true that there are sources that are going to come out that show, remember, even if the surveillance that picked up Trump and Trump and or Trump associates was technically speaking legal and legitimate, the unmasking of those U.S. persons in that surveillance would be uh, certainly unethical, possibly criminal, and politically catastrophic. Uh, And Nunez, does anyone think, look, I can, you know, Sean Spicer gets told to go out there and defend the administration, and that's his job, Right. You think Nunez is taking orders from the president on what he said? I I doubt it. And you think he's making it up? Is he lying? He's the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. That's quite a conspiracy we're thinking about with that. If you don't believe him, I tend to believe him. I, I, I do believe him. And so what does that mean? This, we are going to be entering 
very precarious uncharted waters here if this information comes out. So you're going to have to join me tomorrow for more on that, and I'm sure we'll be hitting it next week too. Please download the podcast, Buck Sexton with America Now, on iTunes. Until tomorrow, shields high, everybody. <laughs>